Let's uh, welcome in our friend, vaccine researcher, family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. We have bumped up her weekly appearance to make way for today's presser, and the doctor joins us now here on Global News Radio. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Jeff. Okay, let's start with that uh, press conference about 20 minutes or so away. There are a lot of parents eagerly awaiting news that kids are returning to the classroom to in-class learning. Uh, some parents, though, are also anxious as well, a little anxious about their kids going back into the classroom with uh, Omicron, uh, where it's at right now in the numbers. Uh, what are you specifically, Dr. Gorfinkel, what are you looking for or wanting to hear from the provincial government at the bottom of the hour when it comes to a safe return to the classroom? This may be a forlorn hope, but I'm going to put it out there. Let's bring the vaccine to kids in school. Let's make it an opt-out, not an opt-in. We bring hepatitis B vaccine. We bring HPV vaccines to kids. We bring meningitis vaccines to kids in school, and I think we need to do that. Take a look, for example, Jeff, at the number of 5 to 11-year-olds who have even one vaccine. It's less than half. In Ontario. And when we're talking two shots, it's one out of 50, five zero. That's abysmal. And why is that? Because these parents are busy. They're working. They're trying to run Ontario. And what's happening? They've got to worry about how they're going to get their child in for a vaccine. I say make it easy. That's what I'm hoping will happen. All right. So, and we've talked about this in the past, as you mentioned, bring the vaccines to the people where they're uh, needed and where they're uh, wanted most. So just bring uh, vaccine clinics right into schools. Is that what you're hoping to hear? I would love to hear that. I don't know if that's going to be the case. We haven't heard anything about such a hope. What we're hearing more about is bringing N95s to classrooms, making sure that HVAC systems are up to date and working, making sure that teachers are fully vaccinated if possible. And by fully, that's even the antiquated definition of just two doses. We know that third dose, that booster shot is extremely important in ensuring good immunity. So these are the things that I suspect is going to be announced along with you know, just driving home what the new guidelines are, not the five, 10 days, but the five days of isolation for children who are symptomatic and vaccinated. That's what I suspect they're going to be saying. And considering those vaccination rates among children right now, do you expect, uh, as we get set for kids to head back into the classroom sometime next week, uh, do you expect the numbers to continue to climb to go up at least in the short term because of that? Well, if we take a look at the numbers as a whole in Ontario, it's really interesting. So this is information taken from Toronto Science Table Dashboard. Cases are actually down by 20% in the past week. They've actually come down, so they may have peaked. So what's going to happen in schools? Because the 5 to 11-year-olds are largely unvaccinated, we will see a, you know, that group rising almost with certainty. And, you know, 12 to 12 year olds and up, they're doing way better. Actually, some 85 percent of them have already received two doses. They're fully vaccinated. So that's that's fabulous. But it's the younger kids. And of course, we don't have a vaccine at all for kids under five because Health Canada has yet to approve one. And unfortunately, we've just recently heard from Pfizer that 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 data is going to be put off just a little bit if they continue doing research on on, the, on a vaccine for younger children. 
All right. Meantime, let's shift uh, from the education uh, sector to the uh, healthcare sector and hospitals, because uh, of course we've been talking about ICU capacity, hospitalization when it comes to COVID and Omicron. In Ontario now, Doctor Gorfinkel, distinguishing between people admitted to hospital with COVID as opposed to for COVID. Can you explain that a little bit uh, more in detail uh, for us and why this is such an important distinction? It is crazy important. You know, so when we say admitted with or for, I would like to substitute those words. So we could say what group is admitted because of COVID. In other words, COVID caused that admission. And the answer is just over half, 54%. But it's so common in the community right now. So what happens? How many happen to have COVID when they came into hospital? And that answer is just under half, 46%. Happen to have COVID and are in hospital. And why is that such a relevant distinction? Because hospitals have to test everybody who's coming in. It's extremely common. And hospitals are working to make sure to isolate these individuals properly. And you can imagine the extra burden that puts on hospitals. Every one of these individuals has to have a private room. They have to be separated from other people. They need extra PPE, the whole, the whole line, you know, right down the and, and that makes it a lot tougher. The numbers are a little bit different when it comes to ICU. The vast majority, some four out of five individuals over that actually, are admitted to ICU these are the, of the people who actually test positive for COVID. Four out of five are admitted to ICU because of that COVID-19 diagnosis. So this distinction, is this something we should have been making earlier when it comes to hospitalizations and hospital numbers regarding COVID? Or to your point that you just made, Dr. Gorfinkel, does it even matter? Because whether you're there specifically for COVID or not, if you do have COVID, if you're positive, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, healthcare uh, staff, uh, you know, they have to PPE, uh, they have to isolate uh, you. So it's still, you know, an extra burden, if you will, on the hospital system, on the healthcare system. Absolutely. They've got to scrub those rooms down when the patients come and when they go, wherever they are. They're, they're, they're really trying very hard to make sure that, you know, the hospitals themselves don't become places of spread. Now, that hasn't happened in Ontario, but we have seen that happen in other countries. I don't have to remind you about Italy when the pandemic first broke out. It was mayhem there because they were not isolating patients properly. So that does put a tremendous burden, an additional burden on hospitals. All right. I also wanted to uh, ask you about uh, the numbers uh, overall. As you just mentioned, uh, they have been uh, decreasing over the last uh, little while. Do you believe and do experts think that to Omicron that we have seen the peak uh, or could that uh, still be a little uh, ways ahead? Uh, again, as we see kids, as we're uh, hearing and about to get the announcement at the bottom of the hour, are returning to in-class uh, learning. Do we think that Omicron, Dr. Gorfinkel, has it uh, peaked? Do we know? You know what? It's really hard to be a thousand percent certain about it because there are so many different moving parts. With kids returning to in-person learning, that's going to that that could easily create another spike in cases. So just because case numbers did go down by 20 percent in the past week in Ontario overall, that doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily heading straight down. Biology doesn't care one iota about you know curves and graphs, what, it's, what, it's, what it is is, you know, are we going to see way more infections? 
Now, I wish I could say the same was true for hospital occupancy. You know, that more than doubled in the past week. And that's because hospitalizations generally will lag a couple of weeks behind cases. So people get sick, and it takes a little while for them to get sick enough to require hospitalization. And that's why hospitalizations lag. And what are we seeing now? More than double the number of hospitalizations required simply because of Omicron. So that's pretty scary. Can we look elsewhere as a bit of a guide, a bit of a roadmap? Everybody obviously pointing to South Africa and the fact that Omicron seemingly peaked fairly quickly there and then rapidly declined. Is that any help to us at all? Absolutely. I think it, 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 it gives... It gives us hope. And what we know about Omicron, and these are all hopeful things. Let's put them all under one umbrella. First, the risk of a child being admitted to hospital. What's the absolute risk? Best data from the U.S., one in 25,000. It's not like it's crazy, crazy high. And the risk actually to older children is less than that. So what's the problem here? The problem is if everybody gets sick all at once, our hospitals can be overwhelmed. That's the scary thing about kids. But the absolute risk for any one child is low. Yes, the disease does seem to be more mild. It seems to come on more quickly, and it also seems to go away more quickly. So two things. And, and it, it's, it's kind of reflected by how long are patients having to stay in the ICU. So ICU stays used to be really long, some 20 days. And now the average ICU stay is down to seven days. So these are all kind of feel goods, you know, and yes, there's no question. You get the disease, you get Omicron, and maybe you're going to expand your body's immune system. You know, your portfolio does get a little bit better in terms of fighting potentially the next variant, a little bit better. I'm not saying a lot better. I'm not saying it's going to work to, to stop it, but it will expand that portfolio. But now for the hard reality check, what about long COVID? Is that a risk? And the answer is we don't know. And what degree is it going to protect us from future variants? You know, it's interesting. This whole thing about variants, it works kind of like resistance to antibiotics. You know, so if you're constantly taking an antibiotic, what happens? You get resistance. And if you're constantly taking the vaccine to COVID, what have we seen? Every variant has been successively more resistant to the vaccines, successively. And so Omicron is the most resistant variant we've seen so far. All right, listen, we got to step aside, take a quick break right here on Global News Radio. Stay with us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink. 